Hey guys, you're listening to episode 77 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Al Muller, founder and president of Excellence in Giving, as well as the Kingdom Giving Fund. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we're talking to Al Muller, founder and president of Excellence in Giving and the Kingdom Giving Fund. Al had a successful career on Wall Street before launching Excellence in Giving, which has become a well-established philanthropic advisory firm for generous families. Al is passionate about helping families find joy and high impact in their giving, and you won't want to miss all the wisdom he had to share. Before we get started, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get the message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just want to say thanks. It really makes an impact. If you think this or any of our other conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second and share it with somebody who might need to hear it. We have been blown away at how God has used some of these stories to make a radical impact in the world of generosity and missions, and you very well may be a link in that chain. All right, with that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here with Al Muller today from Excellence in Giving. Al, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, I have a wife and three children and two grandchildren. And 21 years ago, we started a company called Excellence in Giving. And that followed about a 20-year career on Wall Street. And I had enjoyed that a great deal but felt like the Lord had a kingdom purpose for me that wasn't helping pagan wealthy people become wealthier. I enjoyed the Wall Street time, and it was really, really satisfying, but I felt like the Lord had something more for me. Al, could you tell us a little bit more about how faith played a factor in your life growing up and in the beginning of your career? Yeah, I think from a young age, you know, I saw my dad, and I was a businessman, you know, very involved in community activities. He served on the board of United Way and a local hospital and Red Cross. And so seeing him give back to others while he had a big job, he had over 7,000 employees. I felt like that was something that was kind of part of our family DNA was to help others. And when, you know, if you're blessed with resources or just opportunities and relationships. So seeing that early age helped me step forward. I think when I had an opportunity to work in New York and Chicago and also in Colorado. And I think that, you know, my faith really, even my wife and I both have a spiritual gift of giving, but it wasn't until we went through Crown Ministries that we really understood that all decisions were spiritual decisions. I think we had been giving it maybe 25% of our gross income. So I thought, hey, whatever's left with the 75% would be free for me to do what I wanted because I had already kind of given the tithe and beyond. And I think when Crown Minute, we went through Crown Ministry, my wife and I realized that all decisions were spiritual decisions. And I had to, you know, think about the other 75% in that context, too. So faith is definitely important. The Crown Ministry allowed us to really rethink that. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you came into excellence in giving and how that transition looked like out of the business world? Or I guess not necessarily out of the business world, but at least in a different role. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that as I had a little bit of a smoldering discontent, thinking that the Lord had something more for me than my Wall Street career, I asked the Lord to help me write a mission statement. I would have a sort of a guiding, a North Star. And I would encourage anyone listening to write down, ask the Lord to help them write down a mission statement. But I was on a plane flying from Phoenix to New York City, and I grabbed a little moleskin notebook, and I wrote down that Al Muller's life purpose is to motivate Christians to give significantly and sacrificially with maximum efficiency to kingdom activities. I literally wrote that down in a moleskin notebook and then started looking at it and saying, hey, I should edit this. And I realized there was nothing missing and nothing I could really add to that. So I got off the plane in New York City and I was going to a hotel on Park Avenue. I was working for UBS at the time. My wife, Susan, and I called her up and I said, I think the Lord has given me this life purpose statement. What do you think? She said, it sounds like it's divinely inspired and it fits you perfectly. And could you fulfill that if you stayed at UBS? So she connected that last dot. That was a pretty important challenge to think, okay, I've got the mission statement. You know, how do I execute it? So I went to my boss. It was a friend from business school, UCLA business school. And he had hired me from Morgan Stanley, where I'd worked for 15 years. And the idea there was that he wanted me to stay and he'd given me some stock and some other things that I had to be there at the UBS for five years. So I knew if I left, I was going to leave a lot of money on the table so I went to him and said, hey, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to go to a competitor. And I know I can't keep the stock and other things you gave me. He went back to Zurich to our boss and said, let me see what I can do. And he came back in a week and said, we'll let you keep the stock with the same cliff fast schedule and we'll give you a six-month severance. It was pretty amazing because it was a lot of money. And it was really evident that says, you know, God's going, Al, if you'll be obedient, I'll be faithful. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. How did the first steps into excellence and giving look for you? Did you take some time off to sort of work that out? Or was that as you knew that your time in Wall Street was coming to a close, did you start to plan out what excellence and giving would look like? I really wasn't smart enough to do that. You know, about probably five years into it, I went through halftime with Bob Buford and some other people. And Bob said, you know, Al, when people are leaving something like your career, we encourage them to make low cost probes. But in your case, I think you did a high dive into a sponge. <laughs> and I said, Bob, I think you're right. I was fortunate the sponge was pretty large. It was wet. So I didn't die. I came close. But, you know, and I would say that it wasn't super well planned out. It was just, I realized that people of high net worth spent a lot of time and money on hiring the best professionals to manage their wealth. And I felt like there may be a chance for them to pay somebody to help them give their wealth to appropriate, you know, causes that they have passion about. Now, my wife said at the time, do you really think anybody will pay you to help them give their money away? For the first few years, she was right. It was a pretty limited amount of audience until it was more proven. We can talk about what the difference between giving and stewardship is at some point, but in this interview, but I think that the, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, giving away money is difficult. And those quotes go back to Aristotle and Carnegie and so many different people, not just Christians, but giving away money intelligently is a challenge. And I think if someone says it isn't, they probably haven't tried to give large sums away. So it was pretty lean in the beginning. And I think after three years, we had kids that were getting ready to go to college and other things like that. I said, I think maybe I heard from the Lord 
wrong and I should do something different. And she said, let's give it five years. So if she hadn't said, let's give it five years, the excellence giving experiment would have probably come to an end in three. So one of the things I love about that whole origin story is the fact that you just heard this one mission statement from God. And then along with your wife affirming that and, you know, running things through her, you just dove head first straight in. And I feel like that is a very powerful theme that I have seen in many stories of extremely impactful lives is that God never gives us the whole picture up front. And if he did, it would be easy to make a lot of these decisions. I feel like frequently he gives us just that little bit of you're not going to be able to do this in your current job. Something's going to have to be different. And he asks us to just trust him with the rest of the story. And I think that is so perfectly pictured in everything that you just shared. I'd love to hear what excellence in giving looks like now. You made it through those you know, very early stages and you guys do some incredible work today. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about kind of what your day-to-day life looks like and the types of clients that you work with and the type of work that you guys focus on. Yeah. After 21 years, it's extremely exciting. We work with over 40 families, high net worth families, ultra high net worth families, families that give between say one and $25 million away each year. And combined is annual giving from those families is between 125 and $150 million a year of giving. And it's domestic, it's international, it's to, you know, I think it was last year was 800 different nonprofits, some of faith and some not. You know, it's just an incredible opportunity to serve these families. We've served some families for almost the whole life of our company, some over 15 years. And so you become close with them, their kids. Sometimes there'll be a death and you'll continue to serve a widow. And, you know, it's really a sacred trust. I think we have several clients that have named me as a trustee for their kids. It's a very deep and meaningful relationship where they, you know, we have a service agreement. These are annual contracts that renew, but the friendships and the advice deepens and goes way beyond giving over time. Al, can you share a little bit more about the concept that you were talking about earlier, the difference between giving and stewardship? Yeah, I think if anyone looks in the scriptures and looks at how important the role of the steward is, I mean, the steward, you know, wealthy family in the time of Jesus, they had stewards, but they were super hard to find because they were responsible for the family, the finances, and the staff. And if you think about a wealthy person turning over those areas to somebody else, I mean, you're really going to be picky. That person has to have unquestioned integrity, has to have incredible wisdom, has to be, you know, super hard worker. I mean, you know, I mean, everyone of high net worth today, everyone would like to find someone who they could turn over those sort of responsibilities to. And so the Lord says to us, I'll bless you with resources, but I want you to be a steward. And that steward has to, I mean, just like an investment manager, that steward has to take that responsibility very seriously. I mean, that's an incredible responsibility. I mean, it's not something like you just go into your garage and there's a bucket of money and I have to give it away. You know, it's nothing like that. And so I think the emphasis on generosity has been more is always better. And I think my life message is one that says generosity with discernment. And I think a steward is one that has 
that helps people have generosity with discernment. Because I don't think all generosity and no discernment does not Lord any more than all discernment and no generosity. It's a couplet. And it's, I think God has said to us, I gave you a head and a heart. I didn't say pick one. And I think there's a lot of emphasis in teaching sometimes in the generosity space that, you know, someone will say, I'm a head giver and my wife's a heart giver. And it's like, no, we didn't have that. We had something that was supposed to be, you know, we're a whole creature. God gave us both and he wants us to use both in our giving. So what does it look like when you have a new family that you begin working with or a new client or potential client? How do you start to frame some of that conversation into more of a stewardship mentality? And what kind of practical steps do you guys start taking from that point? Yeah. You know, first of all, we're looking for a family that would say there's some sort of holy discontent or smoldering discontent with the status quo. If they don't, in their world of giving, if they're completely happy and satisfied with it, we're not interested in trying to convince them otherwise. When I started Excellence in Giving, I really committed to the Lord that it would be a tell, not a sell. I'm a salesman by nature, but I don't want to sell you on Excellence in Giving. I want to tell you what we can do. I want to listen to what your problems are. Your problems might be, I have too many requests. I don't have enough requests because I don't know enough ministries. I'd like a bigger opportunity set. I'd like my kids to be involved. I really don't get good reports from the ministries I support. Whatever the problem is, then we would go about figuring out a way to solve them. Because after 21 years, I mean, there's really not a problem in the world of giving that we can't solve and for a family. But if they don't have a problem, then we shouldn't really start working together until they have more of a felt need for that. And so we start with a discovery process to find out, go through a couple hour interview with them and get their life story because your passions and your priorities come out of your life story. So, you know, how you were raised, the things you saw, the things you learned, the difficulties you encountered, all those sort of things kind of weave together. And we call our joy filled giving profile. And it's a document that we would give them, which is sort of a giving mission statement, as well as some filters to run things through. And so, because I think the one of the hardest things about giving for people is they have a hard time saying no. And if you don't know what you're supposed to say yes to, then you're going to get all these good ideas and good requests. And you don't know what to say. You can't say, no, I don't want to do that because it's a bad idea. So, but I think once you know what you want to say yes to, it really makes it easy for you to tell people, yes, it's a wonderful thing you're doing, but only the Lord has the capacity to deal with all the problems in the world. I mean, you should be looking at a subset of the issues that the Lord cares about. So, Al, we've heard all kinds of things through this podcast from how to give better to how to think about wealth in a different context, some of the things that you were starting to talk about, and certainly where to give. I imagine that you touch on a number of these different things. Do you find that with the families that you work with and the amount of resources that they've been entrusted with, do the methods of giving differ for those families as compared to maybe the mass affluent sector? No, I think it's actually, well, I think one of the questions we thought we were going to talk about was what is sort of surprising. And one of the things that is surprising is that it's harder to give out of assets than out of income. The giving out of income, we have a number of clients that give it as high as 50 percent of their income. But that's something where, like you know, if $2 come in 
you keep one and you give one to some cause. Giving out of assets, when we've seen people have a big sale of a business or some other liquidity event, they kind of get frozen up because, you know, when you get a big sum of money or big, you know, have a group or assets, even a donor advised fund or a private foundation, you know, your timing decision is really difficult. There's nothing that says that money has to be given away in one year, five years, 10 years, a hundred years, right? I mean, you get the donor advised fund has no giving requirement. Private foundation has only a 5% requirement. So when you have a big pile of dedicated assets for philanthropy, it's really hard to figure out the timing decision versus giving out of income because the income comes in in one year and it can go out in one year unless it's a kind of an exceptional amount of money. But giving out of assets, I refer to it as the Velcro effect. You know, your assets, whether, and again, it could be a private foundation, donor advised fund, or just other assets that you dedicate for philanthropy, it sticks to you. I mean, and it's on your psychic balance sheet, emotional balance sheet. I mean, when people, even when they have a donor advised fund, they say, oh, I've already given it away or whatever. I don't believe that because if the market goes down and your donor advised fund is invested, you know that you have less money, even though in theory you've given it away. So it's still on your emotional spiritual psyche balance sheet. It's not really given away until you actually have put it into the hands of an operating nonprofit. So, And how about your process for helping families determine where to give? Yeah. Again, it comes out of that joy-filled giving profile. So the joy-filled giving profile helps us understand, you know, things. And again, you know, for us asking questions, you know, someone says, I want to help veterans. That's a starting point. But there's a lot of refining that goes into that. You know, is it helping the veterans' children get an education? Is it helping them with affordable housing? Is it helping them with employment? There's so many different aspects of how you would help a population. So, again, that kind of comes into the joy-filled giving profile. And it's also, if you're asking them about different experiences in life, you understand their risk tolerance. A lot of this comes, you know, I think God's got a sense of humor because most of my time in Wall Street was spent in the fixed income markets, which is more of a risk assessment than a reward assessment. You know, the people on the equity side of the business were looking for the unicorns that the trees would grow to the sky and, you know, 10 baggers and billion dollar valuations and that kind of stuff. The fixed income people were like, am I going to be able to get my principal and my coupon paid? And I think that's a little more like the investments in the nonprofit sector. You know, we want to look at risk. And some people have more risk tolerance than others. Therefore, they're going to give to a startup ministry. And other people would say, you know what? I'd feel really bad if something went wrong. So I want to give to the blue chips. You know, I want to give to ministries that have done this a hundred times and it works every time or almost every time. So I want to do that. So again, it's, you have to advise the families based on their passions, their priorities, their profile. And some of it, like I said, is risk related in that. And I think that, again, the joy-filled giving profile below it, the mission statement has filters. So one client said, I don't want to give before we ask the Holy Spirit for direction. So when we're counseling with that client, we'd say, okay, here's this idea. And before you decide, remember to go ask the Holy Spirit for direction, because that's what they told us they wanted to do. There's other people that said they don't want to give to more than the number of organizations that they could pray for. And this fellow said, in his mind, that was like 12. So, okay, so fine. That's, you know, so if you're going to give, you might have to take one out of your portfolio to put one into your portfolio if you want to keep that constraint. 
So again, it's a very customized, I mean, it's probably a little more like making a custom suit than having somebody walk into the store and buying one off the rack. So yeah, that's a really helpful context. And I think helps put some framework around the giving decision or really the stewardship decision, the risk tolerance and some of those different factors that play in. So one of the things I'm curious about is how you actually go about narrowing in on specific ministries. So if somebody has narrowed down their focus, the direction that the Holy Spirit has given them to, you know, say evangelism or discipleship or a more narrow field or a area of the world or something like that, then what do you do in terms of trying to help narrow down to an actual organization that they can come beside? Yeah. Well, maybe I can illustrate that. So one of our clients felt like they had been given enough resources, they were supposed to have the gospel proclaimed to 10 million people in India. And so that was the starting point of their request and started beginning early in the relationship. So we said, well, we better figure out how that could work. Would you be doing it sort of, would mass evangelism be one way to do it, you know, through Jesus film or something else like that? Would that happen through church planting networks? Would it happen through literature, through Bible distribution? So we had to look at different ideas for this client because he felt pretty convicted that the Lord has said, okay, you should use your resources to try and get the gospel proclaimed to 10 million people in India. But we had to think, what are the different options to accomplish that goal? And ultimately, we came down and we think we, with the client, agreed that church planting would be the way, you know, to try and grow that audience and to you know, have a better chance that the presentation would take root and these people would develop and become disciples, not just be exposed to the gospel one time. So from there, we went to the next step and we looked at seven different church planting organizations and rated them from what we consider sort of best to worst or highest to lowest in a bunch of different measures and then came back and presented what we thought was the best of the group. And that's the one that he's made, you know, multi-million dollar gifts to even going on through today. So it started with, like we talked earlier about that God gives you sometimes the what before he gives you the how and the who and the where. Well, actually you give the where there also in that case. But I think that you have to just keep digging down in different layers to help the clients achieve their objective. You know, we had a woman who said, I really want to give to an organization that would help kids fall in love with reading. Well, she wasn't talking about literacy she wanted to help them fall in love with reading. And actually through that, we found a ministry that Ben Carson had started called the Ben Carson Reading Rooms. And she was a patron for that organization and helped establish quite a few more of their reading rooms in public schools. So, but it's listening carefully to the client. You know, I mean, I sometimes people say, what do you do at Excellence in Giving? Or what do we do? And I say, we make people's philanthropic dreams come true. And it sounds sort of cheesy, but I think, you know, in 21 years, there's a lot of people that have had an opportunity to have their dreams come true. And, you know, one woman, they've given enough money to have a business school get accredited. You know, I asked her now that the accreditation had come through, what would she like to, how she'd like to celebrate? One of our four values is celebration. And we really feel like celebration keeps the flywheel spinning and makes people want to do it again. And if your kids don't see celebration, if they hear you come home from a banquet and you know and you complain about it the kids will say mom and dad why do you do this if you're not enjoying it why do you do it so celebration is really important 
So I asked this woman how she wanted to celebrate this achievement of the school getting its accreditation. I said, why don't you think about having a speaker come and, and, you know, at the school? I said, do you have any, like, a wish list of a speaker? And she said, I've always thought very highly of Condoleezza Rice. And so we had Condoleezza Rice come and talk to the students and have a dinner with her, some other, you know, very high capacity school supporters of the school and the president of the school and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, she was over the top. I mean, that was just like a dream for her was to see this come. And I said, well, let's celebrate it. You know, we got to celebrate this thing. You know, another woman wanted to make a one-time gift of a million dollars to help in mental and behavioral health. And when it was all said and done, we actually, when the building process finished, she literally had a full-size bus with her friends and family come to the ribbon cutting. You know, the newspapers were there and other stuff like that. There was that, but but she was so excited about her gift and what it accomplished because it was a once in a lifetime gift for this person. Probably the most sacrificial gift I've ever seen any of our clients make, you know, but she wanted to celebrate and it was great to have her family and friends come on a bus to a ribbon cutting, you know? And so, I mean, because our tagline is to, for people to experience the joy of generosity. And, you know, if you're not experiencing the joy and generosity, you're not doing it right. Something needs to be changed. So joy is a big part of what God promises in the world of generosity and stewardship. Yeah, I agree so much. And I don't think I've heard somebody so succinctly and clearly emphasize that need to celebrate some of those wins in really bringing out that joy in the generosity, the fact that you get to be a part of that story and to see all the pieces come together. And I love that that's a part of your process. And I think that you're right, that that really does keep the flywheel going, like you said. I wanted to take a step back to something you were talking about when you're talking about lining up the seven organizations and then ranking them on a number of different criteria. I was hoping you could dig in a little bit deeper to what some of those things are that you actually look for in an organization. Because as I'm just thinking it through, I mean, there could be, you know, the per dollar impact or there's other projects where it's per dollar, not necessarily as efficient as another one, but it's in a very difficult to obtain goal. So there's a a lot of different ways, different metrics you could kind of look at for trying to find a good match. And so what are some of those kind of metrics that you guys hone in on? Yeah, well, I think in the context of evaluating a new ministry, the first question we want to ask is, what is the problem they're trying to solve? And then, okay, then they would we'd listen to them articulate, this is the problem we're trying to solve. And then we would want to ask them a follow-on. Second question would be, what do you believe causes that problem? Because if we're kind of going down the path of theory of change, okay, so what's the problem? What do you think causes a problem? Now you've said, okay, we understand what the problem is. We understand what caused the problem. Then we would want them to tell us what their solution is. What is your solution to that problem? And, you know, they would tell us their solution and we'd kind of have, okay, problem, causes a problem, their solution. And then the final piece is to say, okay, what is your evidence that your solution is working? What are your results? What are your proof? So it's a little, I mean, and I think you can use that framework for almost any type of ministry, you know, because they should be focused on solving a problem. And then you should be thinking, okay, well, why does this problem even exist? And okay, well, we don't want the problem to exist anymore. So we should come up with a solution, but you have to test the solution. And if the solution is 
working 75%, then maybe some adjustments are made. Or if it's working 100%, then you just pour a lot of money behind it and try and scale it. But I think you have to go through those steps of, you know, what is the problem? What caused the problem? What's your solution? We would say in that last part, is it working? Excellence in giving's position on that is we want to be the friendly skeptic. You know, we want to tell the ministry leaders and the ministry people, we love you. We appreciate what you're doing. And I know it's hard work. We just need some documentation, some evidence that supports what you're telling us. So, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say, trust, but verify. And we would just say, you know, we're in the friendly skeptic business because being a cynic doesn't do us or the client any good at all. But being a friendly skeptic, I think, really does serve everyone, I think, in the equation. So, Al, if you've been working with some of your clients for 15 years or more, like you mentioned, it sounds like it's really more than just coming up with a plan together and then giving them that plan to go execute. You're walking alongside them over some period of time. Have you seen clients grow throughout that process over the years working alongside them? And have you experienced personal growth through the work that you do? Yeah, good question. You know, I think we've experienced it together with as clients. I mean, we've taken kids that are now married. We took them when they were very young on international trips and families. We've taken many families on their first international trips to do a site visit. And we feel like when we do an international trip with a family, there should be three components. There should be a educational component, a service component, and a fun component. And we shouldn't just be a tourist. We should have some kind of leave behind. And we should also, you know, have some fun on the trip, you know, because the goal of the trip is on the way out, the kids will say, mom and dad, when can we do this again? And one of the families referred to it as a reward trip, not a mission trip or a service trip, but a reward trip. There's very few things that you can do. I mean, you can't read about certain things. I mean, to walk in the slums of a city is so much different than reading about it. You know, we took a family a number of years ago to Guatemala. It was on their first missions trip and it was a Thanksgiving trip. And we're, I mean, texting was already in place. And this girl is a high, it was a college age girl and she was texting back to her friends and or maybe emailing back then to her friends in college. What are you doing? Oh, we're shopping at Neiman Marcus. The sales are incredible. What are you doing? We're handing out sandwiches here in the garbage dumps in, in Guatemala. It's awesome. You know, if you're a parent, you know, which end of that text or email exchange do you want your kids to be on? And so a lot of it is experience and seeing, you know, if you've been a family especially some of these families we serve. I don't want to say they grow up in a bubble, but they certainly grow up in an affluent setting. And it's pretty easy to assume that everybody has, you know, clean running water and everybody has this and everybody has, you know, certain luxuries. And when you go and you see people in Africa, Latin America, Asia, whatever, you see people that are very, very poor and they're happy and they're smiling. And I think it's something that, you know, and again, these conversations take place. I mean, I think that, you know, anybody who talks about parenting, they'll say, you know, it's not quantity time, it's quality time. And I think that quality time only happens in the midst of quantity time and in the midst of a lot of experiences where you and the family go and see things, some of which you've already participated in. Maybe you've already given a gift. Sometimes you go there and now your heart is drawn to it. 
you see things happen. One of my favorite stories was that same trip to Guatemala. We took the kids out to see a soccer ministry and they were playing soccer on a field that, you know, is full of rocks and broken glass and even had a drainage ditch in one part of the field. And so we talked to the ministry leader afterwards. I did. I said, I think this family wants to help your soccer ministry. What do you need? And he said, if we had $600, we know a welder and he would put some stands up on one side of this field. And I told him, I said, think bigger. And he goes, well, $1,200, we could put one on each side. And I said, well, you can even think bigger than that. This family has some more money than that. And so literally like four or six months later, he came back and he showed us a plan for a $500,000 soccer complex. I mean, and it wound up being almost a two and a half million dollar project in terms of value, but he got it done for a half million dollar. He got lights from a college in Florida. He got AstroTurf donated at 80% discount to list price. I mean, it was literally a FIFA qualified soccer field that started from kids playing with other kids on a field. And this guy thinking that $600 would build a, and he's an amazing project and a very determined guy to get this thing done. But the soccer ministry went from two employees to 38 employees that were being paid for by this soccer field, a lot of rental. I mean, other ministries have used it. It's just off the charts, but it started from a trip with a family that, you know, just let kids see other kids playing soccer and this family had resources and it's really a cool story. So, yeah, I love that story. And I think so much of the time that, you know, there's a much greater impact than we even realize with getting those seeds planted. And it sounds like that field is now really supporting that ministry in kind of a long standing way and has opened many other doors. So I wanted to pivot for a second. The generosity space has, I think, really exploded over the last 20 years. And there has been a lot of momentum building. And I think as people have really embraced generosity, there has been some hesitation about providing direction on where to give. And Mm -hmm. obviously, that's a major part of what you do. But on the other hand, families are coming to you asking that specific question, where do we give? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on when we should be giving people guidance on where specifically to give and what that conversation should look like. Yeah, I think that, yeah, the why of giving, I mean, the groups like Generous Giving really have gone and found great things out of the Bible. There are groups along the way that help people in the some of the how of giving, a little more tactical side of that. And then we do specialize in the where of giving. And our best illustration would be that the why of giving is like hitting a tee shot in golf. It helps you get started. The next part, the how, is sort of your approach shot. It's the second shot that gets you, you know, hopefully on the green. And the where is, you know, where excellence in giving would be on the green, helping people read the green and make the putt. But you haven't played the hole until you've putted out. If anybody understands golf, I think they'd understand. And I'm not saying that one is more important than the other. They all fit together, but they are in a continuum that, you know, if you just talk about the why of giving and then the how of giving, you never get around to the where of giving, then you haven't executed it. You know, I think that, you know, people aren't going to be, you're never going to hear God say, well-planned, good and faithful servant. You know, he says, well done. Done is a completed act. It's executed, right? So you do have to, at some point, get to the where of giving. 
Now, should other people advise people about giving? You know, if they've done some homework and if there's some honest familiarity with a ministry or if they just, you know, give them an introduction, that sort of thing. I think friends helping friends do giving can be a little bit difficult because people have different favorite ministries and charities. And it may not just not be a fit. But so if you haven't figured out your own mission statement, but once you've figured out your mission statement, you probably want a bigger set of opportunities. But, you know, I mean, people can be like a little bit like a ping pong ball going back from, you know, oh, my friend says to give to this. Oh, this friend says to give to that, give to this, give to that. They're all good things. I mean, that's what we talked about before is what do you say no to? Because all these friends are probably giving to good ministries, but they're probably not a fit for you. So you really need to spend some time figuring out what God has laid on your heart because your passions have to be a subset of his passions. And scripture does say that God cares about the widow and the orphan and the people in prison. I mean, there's some things that are very clear in scripture that God cares about. And then, you know, you have to do some homework and see, you know, if you care about the widow, what organizations are helping the widow? If you care about the orphan, who's helping the orphan? And again, is how do you help an orphan? You know, there's a lot of discussion today about are institutional orphanages the best way to care for a kid or, I mean, bring them from a different country to the U.S. or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of discussions about how do you help an orphan, but but God clearly says you should help an orphan, and God clearly says you should help a widow, and God clearly says you should minister to people in prison. So, I mean, once you, there's no substitute for doing your homework once you've identified your passions, but I think, yeah, you can't really, we don't want even our clients, we don't let them outsource it to us. We've never wanted to do a mutual fund We've never wanted them to give us money. We distribute it. They're always making the decisions. Our role would try to be get the cards on the table face up, and then they and the Holy Spirit decide how to play them and take as much or as little risk as they want to take. But there's really no substitute for doing homework in the area of giving. I mean, you can. it's certainly good to talk to other people, but even some of the people that are really generous maybe haven't done a lot of homework. And so I wouldn't just blindly tell you, follow the leader. And there are groups that do better marketing than ministry. And, you know, we've had clients tell us, well, I know this ministry. And I go, well, how do you know? I've been on their website or I've seen advertisements on TV or whatever. And I said, well, again, that could be marketing. That may not be ministry. And some organizations are really good at marketing and ministry, but there's a lot that are better at one than the other. Some of the unknown ministries could do a better job at marketing and some of the marketing giants could do a better job at the ministry. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said. And I've found that in my own journey, a lot of that has been a discovery process over time and through experience. And I've noticed that I wasn't sure what I was really passionate about and what I really enjoyed giving to, like what kind of gifts that I could make that would produce that joy that you're talking about and others that might have been more of a sense of obligation and you start to fine tune and figure that out. And that I think provides important direction for someday when I might have even more resources to give, I have a much better directional focus for giving. Yeah. I mean, when you have more money, you can just do more of what you're doing. I'd be a mistake to say when I have a lot of money, then I'll start doing something. I would say you'll just do more of it. You'll put zeros and commas on your checks but, you know, whatever breaks your heart now will probably still break your heart when you have more resources. 
And if it doesn't break your heart, then it's probably something that maybe God's letting somebody else, you know, get involved in. But there should be things in our lives that break our heart. You know, there's situations, you know, almost, you know, daily in the news or somewhere else that you feel like that is so unfair or that is so wrong that I got to do something about it. And so just, you know, as God breaks your heart, then figure out who's, you know, a champion in that area and get involved with them. So don't wait, don't wait. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think doing is the key word there. Like you said, I know you're also involved with the kingdom giving fund. Can you share a little bit more about what that is and how that came together? Yeah. God doesn't speak to me very often, but that was December 15th, 2017 at four o'clock in the morning that God said, you know, get up and go to your study. I've got something for you. I literally could have just laid in bed, but that's, it was that clear and that unmistakable. And I went into my office and I grabbed my iPad and I literally felt like I was taking dictation. God said, I want you to aggregate a pool of capital, call it the kingdom giving fund. And I want you to give large gifts, you know, one to 10% of the fund in three areas, Christian witness, alleviate human suffering and encourage human flourishing. And then the line went dead. And so the dictation stopped. And I was like, again, like we said earlier, that sometimes God gives you the what before he tells you the when, the how, or the who. So this was pretty spooky. I mean, I felt like it's never been done before. There's never been a pool of capital aggregated looking for Christian ministries to give these large gifts out. So a week later, December 22nd, I was in Houston with a client and we were helping him make some funding around Hurricane Harvey. I said, can I talk to you at the end of the meeting about something that just kind of came up? And I shared about what I shared with you. And this fellow said, I'll be your first investor. I'll chair your investment committee and I'll help you raise the money. And I said, well, I didn't know I was going to have an investment committee. <laughs> but this fellow's raised about raised and deployed about $80 billion in private equity and energy. And so he obviously knows how to raise money and he knows how to put you know pools of capital together. And so about six months later, we went on the road and he had decided that people that wanted to serve on the investment committee should commit $5 million. And the investment horizon on the first fund was over a three-year period of time. So the investment committee would look at the deals carefully that Excellence in Giving would source and vet. And then we would, with the committee's approval, we would draw down the capital from the people that were committed to this. And we got amazing response to the first fund when it was just really a concept. And people were like, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And the Lord and this other fellow gave this thing a lot of credibility. But the first fund ended end of March, 2022, and people wanted to do a second fund. So we did a second fund, which is the first fund had 12 families. Second fund has 15 families and about $42 million. And it's really designed to do growth capital. So we're looking for things that are, you know, up and running or proven. And there may be a ministry that's operating in say 18 states that really could operate in 30 states, or there may be, you know, there's a hospital chain that's using paper records and we're helping them use electronic medical records. And so it's a big one-time expense, but it'll pay dividends for a lot of years. And that hospital, they think they can do 20,000 more surgeries with no additional costs just by getting more efficient in their record keeping. And, you know, and so it's really been amazing. And only a month or so ago, I had a chance to visit with Rick Warren and Rick said, 
Al, the reason those three categories were the Lord gave you were those are the three things that Jesus did in every village. He would preach, he would teach, and he would heal. So he would preach, you know, for salvation. He would teach for human flourishing, and he would heal the sick. I got, you know, chill bumps when Rick, we've been doing it for five years, when Rick showed me the scripture that said, those three things are what Jesus did in every village. And so the Kingdom Giving Fund is focused on those three things. And it's been the most exciting thing I've ever been involved in professionally to see the people come together once a year with the ministry leaders that receive the funds and they give reports on how they're deploying the, have they, how they're, you know, we have a lot of benchmarks for how the funds are being used. And it's pretty exceptional. We built, I would say, a family among the investors and a community when you include the ministry leaders. It's been spectacular. So can you tell us a little bit more about what kind of the process is as far as bringing those minds and passions together from all these different families involved and honing in onto a single project or a single group of projects? Yeah, it's really, you know, pretty amazing because it's creating a portfolio, if you will. And so the investment committee is, and again, you know, they're giving, we meet now about an hour and a half every six weeks. So we would go out and look for things that would fit into a portfolio. So again, those are the three major categories and then there's subcategories. And there's also an attempt to try and have a 50-50 domestic and international mix in the portfolio. And as you might guess, it's easier to find international deals at a better kind of outcomes per dollar than a domestic deal. But we start with a letter of inquiry and we bring the letter of inquiry to the investment committee and we say, here's what this ministry could do with this money. That sounds pretty good. Okay, tighten it up. Six weeks later, we'll bring back a really detailed term sheet. They like the term sheet. You know, we go back and we do a full due diligence to prove out all the things that are on the term sheet. And then we have an interview with the ministry leader and it's either a thumbs up or thumbs down. But the people outside the investment committee, the I guess you'd call them limited partners or whatever, they have given their proxy to the investment committee. Now, obviously, the investment committee is putting their own dollars as well as their time into this. So and we, you know, Excellence in Giving brings these ideas forward and we sometimes get shot down. And we've also gone to Indonesia to look at a ministry that was it turned out on the ground was not what the U.S. leaders represented. Now, not to their I mean, to give them some excuse, they hadn't been there in two years because of COVID. So they didn't know what was going on. And so they didn't, I don't think they misled us on purpose. But, you know, we've got a fellow, as we speak right now during this interview in Uganda, checking on a ministry that is protecting widows who their property is being stolen. You know, it looks good on the surface. And this fellow's walking to some villages in Uganda to see if it's how it's really going. So, I think it's in a pretty rigorous amount of due diligence. It's growth capital. Kingdomgivingfund.com has a lot of the details on it. It's got its own website. You know, we're not looking for new investors at the moment, but when we finish this fund out, we probably would do a, a third fund. And But it's really, it's the only one of its type that a ministry could come to get a gift of one to say $4 million, kind of one-stop shop for capital. Because if you're a ministry that has a $2 million idea, you're probably going to have to go to the average gift from a Christian foundation is probably a hundred thousand plus or minus. And you're going to have to go and find 
20 foundations, if you have to talk to 40 and have a 50% batting average to get your $2 million. Or you can come to Kingdom Giving Fund. And again, we're not doing operating capital. We're not doing startup capital. We're not, this is growth capital. It's got a really specific place in the market. But if you have a, an idea that's ready for scale, it can change the trajectory of a ministry and pay dividends for a long time. It's very surprising that we didn't have a line out the door. I thought we opened up, we'd have ministries like bang on our door for this. And we've had to chase and source the deals ourselves. It's really not, it's not a lot of unsolicited inquiry. So. Al, you're involved in some really, really exciting work. And I just want to hear, what do you look forward to when you think about the future, the next five or 10 years? Yeah. Well, at Excellence in Giving, last year, we spent a lot of time. We hired a new leader for our COO, Andy Kim, who's 29 years old. I think we're, you know, a lot of our clients are in their 70s and 80s, and I'm in my 60s. And so I think that the next generation is, you know, there's a lot of young tech guys and made a lot of money. And our guys probably have, our clients have really been gifted in making money in the energy sector. So I think it will maybe serve some families overseas. The other thing I'm excited about is we've added a woman from Compassion International, Kate Williams. Kate came on board February 1st, and Compassion had entrusted her over the last 10 or 12 years to build a team of 70 people and a budget of $11 million to continuously monitor and evaluate and measure and improve the Compassion International projects in 28 states. And so she was willing to leave that and start serving other ministries through our company. And so I think our research is going to take a quantum leap forward. I'm very excited about that. I mean, there's times that I want to rejoice that we're serving over 40 families. And it took us 10 years to give our first, our clients $100 million away. And now we're doing, you know, a multiple of that each year. So, you know, I think one of our clients said, well, if you're giving $100 million away each year, why couldn't it be a billion dollars? And I'm like, Man, I just ran a marathon for crying out loud. I, I want to celebrate. I want to take a little bit of a victory lap here. And he's like, no, 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 it's got to be bigger. It's got to be bigger. And, you know, our clients, and it was people were saying, well, if you're serving 40, why couldn't you serve 100? Well, it's really just staffing. I mean, our process works, you know, and we could put people in other. We've not been very successful in the past at trying to branch office concepts. I think we figured out some of the reasons why we didn't either train or support them well enough. So I think branches, whether it's domestic, I think putting an office up in Southeast Asia would make a lot of sense. There's a lot of things that we could do. But again, I feel so energized by having a 39-year-old leader, his title is chief operating officer, but we will promote him to president and I'll remain as CEO. So, you know, this is not a, you're not going to push me out kicking and screaming. I want to still be around to be an advisor and love and serve these families and work on big ideas, but I think our firm's in exceptional shape with Andy Kim as a leader. So, Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm excited to see, you know, what a whole another generation of growth and God continuing to pour fuel on what you guys are doing will look like. Al, where can people learn more about what you're doing, both through Excellence in Giving and the Kingdom Giving Fund? Yeah, our website is probably the best. It's uh, www excellenceandgiving.com, all one word, and kingdomgivingfund.com. We try to put as much information there as possible, a lot of case studies, a lot of, you know, some helps. We have a database called Nonprofit Analytics, 
that people can go and see some summaries. That is a subscriber. We use it for our clients, but there are some summaries that anyone who's could go and take a quick look at a nonprofit and see some updated information. We want to be good stewards of all the opportunity God brings to us. So we would never want to overpromise and underdeliver. And so I think we've been a little reluctant the last couple of years to grow. We've been fortunate to grow by referrals and things like that. But it's I think we're in a new season that growth is there and we'll God will bring us the staff to accommodate it. So Yeah, I'm sure he will. As we get to the end of the episode, I did want to leave some time for our manager's minute. Uh, we like to end every episode with a practical action our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So Al, do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Yeah, I think I would just continue like we talked earlier with Cody to step into action. I mean, I think that you don't become generous when you become wealthy. I think your spirit of giving, I think when you t- have a little bit and you share with others, and you're wise about it, and you bless others, the joy is there. I remember a client who'd given away millions of dollars and I asked him what his most joyful gift was. And he told me about giving $500 to a missionary that was working in one of the former Soviet republics. And he told that missionary to use that for he and his wife to buy a wood-burning stove and do something. And he said that when they wrote him this note and said, we're sitting in front of our wood-burning stove praying for you tonight, he said that gave him more joy than some of the million-dollar gifts that he'd given. So I would say that joy doesn't correlate to the size of the gift, but, you know, give things that will warm, you know, literally, (laughs) figuratively warm your heart or warm, you know, and so if things are breaking your heart and ask God to bring those opportunities into your path. I mean, there may be, you know, somebody that could use a hundred dollars to, you know, get their car towed and you see them on the side of the road and you happen to have a hundred dollars or call a tow truck. And I mean, giving, it does come from the heart and the joy that comes from it is really exceptional. And I think the other part I'd probably say is, Start training your kids at a very early age. Kids are very smart. Kids are going to look at you and it's going to be caught, not taught. So if they see you doing something and also probably maybe even as important, if not more important, if they see you enjoy doing something, they will model it. I mean, why do kids, you know, support their kid, their parents' sports teams? Because they see their parents get excited and enjoy something. They're not forced to become certain team, you know, fans and all that. So get your kids, you know, do stuff with your kids. Let your kids see you helping and serving others. Let your kids see the joy that you're getting from that. And I mean, you know, you can't start too young. The most important thing a parent can do is to be intentional. You know, if anyone says they want to leave a legacy, I think a great Christian legacy will never happen by accident. If it's not 100% correlated with intentionality, it's something in the high 90s. So if you want to leave a great heritage or Christian legacy, be intentional. And a lot of that is with your kids. So, Yeah, amen to that. Well, Al, this has been such a fantastic conversation. Thank you for sharing all that God has done in and through your life and through excellence in giving and the Kingdom Giving Fund. There is so much to pull out of what you have learned over the years. 
And I know this was going to be a huge blessing. So thanks for giving us the time and for sharing your story. Well, thanks you for doing this podcast. And I do hope it's a blessing to anyone who listens and that it's a privilege to serve generous families and families who really want to make a difference, not just a donation. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 77. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.